everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Pia Owens. I am on the steering committee of the Boston Bar Association's Privacy and Digital Law Committee. And as in-house counsel for a global technology company, it's often felt over the past few years as if I'm standing in the ocean and just waves are hitting me and knocking me down and I just have to keep getting back up. And nowhere does it feel more like that than in China, where starting with the introduction of PIPL several years ago, we have seen rapid developments, regulations, rules um, that have been a huge compliance challenge. So we're lucky to have here with us two experts on our panel. Um, David Chen, counsel at Ropes and Gray, advises clients in the life sciences and technology industries on intellectual property, privacy, financial, and strategic issues. He's based in the Shanghai office. And David will be leading us off discussing the PIPL and the uh, privacy framework in China. And then Todd Liao, um, excuse me, uh, a partner from Morgan Lewis, focusing on China-related cross-border data privacy and data security compliance issues. Todd splits his time between Boston and Shanghai and is currently in Boston. Um, Todd will be presenting specifically on cross-border data transfers, which is a topic of interest to all of us. Um, and then we'll have some time for Q&A. So as Caitlin mentioned, if you have questions, um, type them into the Q&A and we will try to get to them at the end. Thanks, and I'm going to hand it over to David. Great, thank you, Pia. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Pia, for inviting me to participate in this webinar. And also, uh, I thank the Boston Bar Association for sponsoring this webinar. Um, like Pia mentioned, I, I'm a counsel at Ropes and Gray in the strategic transaction and data practice. Um, I'm based in Shanghai, so that's where I am right now. It's 11 p.m. at night. Uh, but I do have a Boston connection. I went to law school at Boston University. Um, I have some pretty fond memories of running along the Charles River. Um, but I've been living and practicing in China for over 15 years and, and been helping companies navigate uh, China's data protection laws really since 2017 when the cybersecurity law was enacted and then China began its development of its data, you know, the data privacy and protection regime. So like, like Pia mentioned, we structured the um, webinar today into two parts. Uh, my job is to give you a quick high-level overview of the PIPL. And then my co-presenter, Todd, will get into more of the details on the very important issue of China's uh, cross-border data transfer regime. So, um, you know, first of all, I'm going to talk very generally about, you know, where we are in terms of China's development of its data protection uh, system. And, you know, I'll talk specifically about the specific processing activities where you do have sort of um, more responsibilities under the PIPL. Um, I'll talk about the, uh, if you're a controller, you know, what are your obligations um, to keep in mind? And then at the end, we'll, we'll talk through two case studies to really uh, drive home and illustrate how, you know, uh, the requirements of the PIPL can be applied to a specific company's data processing activities. So, you know, this initial slide really is to really drive home the point that you know, as Pia mentioned, there have been waves and waves of legislation um, over the years, particularly since 2017, when the cybersecurity law came into effect. Uh, since then, you know, we've had, you know, a significant effort by the Chinese government to really build out uh, the data privacy and protection framework. Um, so between 2017 and 2020, we saw a host of new measures and laws put in place. And then in 2021, we also saw the personal information protection law and the data security law uh, come into effect. And so 
um, you know, there really has been a, a strong effort on the Chinese government to really, you know, build out the framework. And what we're starting to see is a, is a full picture of what, um, you know, China's regulation of data is going to look like. Um, at a very, very high level, uh, you know, for if, if you just, you know, didn't know anything about Chinese data protection laws, and you need to really get a sense of what it contains. There are really, you know, four main aspects. Uh, there are three pillar laws. Uh, the cybersecurity law is one of them. Uh, that one deals with, you know, network security um, and the regulation of, uh, regulation of network operators that are operating on the networks. Uh, the data security law is uh, an omnibus law that you know, essentially regulates all data processing activities within the territory of China. And then you have the personal information protection law, which regulates all data processing activities within China. And then the last thing, and it's an also an important part, is sectoral regulations. And so apart from these three main laws, you will also need to look at, you know, your particular industry, because in, you know, if you're in, for example, an automotive industry, or you're doing sort of, um, you know, generative AI or, or social media, you will have specific industry regulators that will have specific requirements for you as it pertains to the processing of your data. And so not only do you have to pay attention to those three laws that I mentioned, you also need to understand, you know, what are the specific regulations that impact your industry. Um, and so, you know, when we, th when we think about, you know, what, you know, how do you start thinking about, you know, what kind of data is regulated in China? I always go back to, you know, going back to your sources of your data, you know, so, you know, I think most, most of you might know that, you know, the first step in terms of doing some sort of a data audit is to assess, you know, what is the type of data you have? And you look at your various business activities, you know, it could be research activities, it could be customer user data, it could be investor data, uh, you might have employee data, and so all these sort of sources of data are generating data. And if it fall, if any of those data fall within these five categories, then I, it's considered regulated data and, and there's going to be uh, specific requirements for you to process that data. So the five categories that I've set out are the it's HDR data, which is human genetic resources data. You have important data, you have personal data, scientific data, and then also state secrets. So if any of your data falls within these categories, then you're gonna have data protection obligations. And so those will be either, you know, data privacy regulations, you have data security obligations. If you are going to be sharing that data with a third party, then you have to follow certain rules. Um, you might have data localization requirements. So, you know, in case you're, for example, a, you know, dealing in important data. Um, and also, you know, if you're then going to be exporting any of this data out there, you also then need to you know, understand that if any of your data falls within these five categories, then you're gonna also have some obligations. Uh, and so, you know, this presentation is gonna focus on the PIPL because that one is the one that is directly regulating the processing of personal information. And so the PIPL came into effect on November 1st, 2021. It's the first you know, comprehensive national law that regulates the processing of personal information in China. Um, in addition to that law, there are other laws that preceded it uh, that do have, you know, regulate um, the processing of personal information. So you'll need to at least pay attention to some of those provisions. A lot of those laws really just have like two articles that say, you know, you need to protect 
uh, or get consent, or you need to provide notice to your data subjects. So most of them um, have obligations that are very similar to what are already in the PIPL, but some of them do have specific requirements that you need to pay attention to. And then lastly, um, you know, the, the PIPL is sort of a, is a law. So a lot of the laws are, a lot of the articles are very, very vague. And so the personal information security specific, specification is a national standard, which gives a lot of detailed guidance as to what the Chinese government believes are best practices. And so it's a useful guide when you're thinking about, okay, when I look at this requirement in the PIPL, how do I actually implement that in practice? Uh, and so, you know, the PIPL, you know, who is governed by the PIPL? So it's similar to GDPR in that it has extraterritorial effect, right? So not only does it regulate your, you know, companies that are processing within China, the personal information of individuals, but if you are also, you know, an entity located outside of China, if you're like, for example, a U.S. company and you have no business, you have no business entity in China, but you're collecting infor personal information from Chinese individuals for the purposes of providing products or services to people in China or evaluating or, or tracking their activity, then you are going to be subject to the PIPL and then you're going to have to comply with its requirements. Um, the other thing is if you, for example, the if you're a foreign uh, personal information handler, which is your foreign controller of data subject to PIPL, then you also need to designate a local representative within China to bear responsibilities associated with the processing of you know, the personal information of individuals in China. And so uh, you also, you know, there's a lot of similarity with GDPR. Uh, like GDPR, you need to have a legal basis to process personal information. And so, you know, I've listed out here, what are the legal basis for processing? You know, you have consent of the data subjects. Uh, you also, if it's necessary to conclude a contract with the data subject, then you can also process that personal information. Uh, you can also process it if you're complying with laws, if you, there's some sort of public health emergency or some other emergency, if you are, um, you know, engaging in news reporting in a limited scope, uh, or if you're dealing with data that's already been publicly disclosed and you're using it in a reasonable manner. So, but you have to have a legal basis, right? So if you don't have a legal basis, then it's essentially your processing of that data is unlawful. The key thing to remember is unlike GDPR, there is no legal basis for legitimate interests. And so, you know, that is a very, very uh, commonly used uh, legal basis under GDPR that doesn't exist under PIPL. And the result of that is that a lot of times where you don't have a legal basis under PIPL, then it defaults to consent. And so the PIPL places a lot more emphasis on a controller obtaining consent to process personal information. And so the next part is, you know, there are specific processing activities under the PIPL that require, you know, special uh, requirements. And, and these special requirements either are you have to conduct a self-assessment to do it, or you have to get separate consent. And then there are other specific requirements. Like, but these processing activities are ones that, um, you know, you if you are engaging in those, then you have to understand like these. There's additional requirements that you need to follow, and I won't get into that in a lot of detail. But, you know, if you're processing sensitive personal information, 
you know, you're engaging in sort of public disclosure of personal information. If you transfer data to another controller or you're engaging in cross-border data transfer, um, if you're using, you know, data processors, those are all situations where you're going to have additional uh, responsibilities. And, and so another one is, you know, for example, automated decision-making. If you are engaging in automated decision-making, for example, you're using some sort of algorithm to decide like, you know, hiring decisions and things like that, then, you know, there's additional requirements. You have to, you know, provide an opt-in notice, opt-out notice. Um, you know, you have to also conduct a self-assessment. Uh, the other one where you also have, um, you know, heightened responsibilities is if you're like a large platform operator, um, you know, if you're like an Amazon or you're like a Facebook or you have, you're operating a platform and a lot of people are on there, um, you will have heightened obligations. And then lastly, if you are transferring data within China, outside of China to a foreign judicial or law enforcement body, then you also um, have to follow certain rules. And, and the specific rule in this case is you can't directly transfer that data to a government without Chinese government approval. And then this area is still sort of developing because the question is then what are the procedures? And, and it's not yet clear yet in some cases, what are the procedures? So we get to, you know, controller obligations and, and what are the controller obligations? You know, I think they're very similar to uh, the requirements in other jurisdictions. So you have to provide, you know, adequate notice to all the data subjects. The one thing I want to emphasize here is that China generally requires a higher level of disclosure than than China than U.S. privacy laws. So what you'll typically find is that um, when you're creating privacy notices for China, you're going to have to provide a lot more detail. Like you have to specific like list out the specific categories of personal information you're processing. You have to tie it to the specific business activity um, that's using that personal information. And then you have to then set out like what is the retention period, any sharing of third parties, and then when you use uh, you know third parties or you you have cross border data transfers, you have to specifically identify that recipient and the country where it's going. So that is uh, you know a heightened requirement for notice. Um, we talked before about separate consent, and so in in those special processing activities where you need separate consent such as if you are processing you know, sensitive personal information, right? Then you have to get separate consent. What is separate consent? It's not really clearly defined in the law, but what it's generally understood to mean is that you have to have a separate notice and then you have to have a separate indication that the data subject understands that processing activity and indicates his consent. And so typically that can be achieved by having some sort of a check the box arrangement where you click click on a link, the separate notice pops up in a window, and then the user can then, you know, do the give the separate consent by checking the box. So that's a very commonly used method. Um, now, one thing to, is, one thing that is interesting to point out is the law says for these specific processing activities, you need separate consent. But if you don't use consent as the legal basis for the processing, then there's a view that you don't need to get the separate consent. So that's a commonly accepted view, but that isn't actually stated in the PIPL. So we think the regulators are going to go in that direction, but we still have to see if that's the case when, when we see enforcement 
uh, come around. Uh, you know, controllers also have data uh, security obligations. So these are like the technical and organizational measures that you have to put in place to make sure that the controller is processing the personal information securely and protecting the rights and interests of the data subjects. Uh, you will also need to designate a local representative if you are over an overseas data processor, uh, sorry, an overseas uh, controller. And then uh, as it relates to a data protection officer, um, the Chinese authorities are supposed to issue guidance as to when you need to have a data protection officer that hasn't been issued yet. Um, but there are some recommended guidance in the personal information security specification that says that, you know, you should probably have a DPO if you're you know, if your core business involves processing personal information or you process personal information of over a million individuals. Um, so that's those are the situations where you may need to have a data privacy officer. That's kind of important because you know a data privacy officer does have certain qualifications it has to meet. And in some cases that can be hard uh, to have somebody serve a data processor. You know, you have to pay that data process the DPO a certain salary and that can be difficult for companies. Um, so it, a lot of companies will avoid trying to have a DPO. Uh, another thing is the PIPL does have a documentary requirement. So you do have to conduct self-assessments if you are processing sensitive personal information, if you're engaging in automated decision-making, you're engaging data processors or you're exporting personal information. Um, you have to conduct a self-assessment before you conduct that processing activity. And you need to maintain that for three years. The other thing is that um, when we get to the cross-border data transfer discussion, if you are then using a standard contract or a security assessment as the basis for your transfer of your data outside of China, you're gonna have to do a self-assessment because the standard contract or the security assessment filing requires you to do a self-assessment anyways. Uh, for data breach notification, uh, the one thing to point out here is that you do have to notify government, the government if there was a data breach. Um, that is a mandatory requirement. There is no, in the law, there is no specific like severity threshold or volume threshold of your data breach, which would then trigger a government notification. So you have to kind of approach it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, you have to maybe con consult with the government regulator when the data breach occurs, see if they consider it to be significant enough where you have to report it. Um, you don't have to notify data subjects if you have taken measures to eliminate the damage that might be caused to the data subjects from the data breach, but the regulator can still require you to notify data subjects if they want to. So that's, you know, those are the two key points around data breach notification. Um, the PIPL also sort of lists out and provides like what are the data subject rights. Uh, those are the, the typical rights you might see under GDPR and other privacy laws. You know, it's like the right to erasure, the right to know how what you're doing with your personal information, the right to correct it. Um, uh, so you know you have to make sure that you have mechanisms to ensure that you're um, you're meeting data subject requests to exercise their data subject rights. Uh, and lastly, the penalties are, you know, um, get a lot of attention because they can be very high. 
Uh, so there are sort of GPR level penalties. In fact, you know, the highest penalty is 5% of global turnover, which is actually higher than, than GDPR. Um, but these, you know, the higher level penalties are really for severe non-compliance cases. So in most time where you're sort of going about and, and there isn't a severe violation, then you won't really have to worry about these higher fines. But if you, you know, there is that there is that risk that, you know, if you aren't, you know, taking adequate steps to comply, that they could view that as a serious violation and you could be hit with a significant fine. So, um, you know, to get to the case studies, I'll try and get through these quickly. But, you know, the first case study is, you know, the a Chinese subsidiary of a multinational pharmaceutical company. And so at the top of this case study, we'll see you know, the boxes where there's the sources of the information. And so if you're collecting, you know, you know, personal information in the context of a clinical trial, um, you're doing patient education, those are all data that's collected within China. And so the company, Y, is going to be the controller of that data, and he's going to be subject to uh, requirements for, you know, as a controller under the PIPL. So you have to ensure that you have adequate notice, uh, that you obtain the consent from the data subjects, uh, that you comply with cross-border data transfer requirements. And then the two high priority areas in my mind that you have to pay attention to is if you, if you collaborate and transfer that data with third parties. Um, if you do that, then that's a high sort of risk area, which you have to then pay attention to making sure that you, you do the things you need to do to make sure you stay compliant. One of, you know, for, for sort of sharing with third parties, you need to make sure that you conduct a self-assessment. You have to ensure the third party's compliance. Um, you have to have a proper uh, data transfer contract in place. Uh, you want to then also take extra steps to ensure that the data is protected by using anonymization or de-identification. Um, and also, if you're using vendors, uh, particularly like cloud vendors and things like that, you will want to make sure that um, at least try to make sure that you use companies that provide data residency as a service so that you don't inadvertently transfer the data outside of China when you didn't intend to. Um, the other priority area is obviously, you know, cross-border data transfers. Um, you know, you have to make sure that, uh, you know, you have to comply with those requirements. And Todd will go into that in more detail. Um, the, the, second, the second case study is, is about, you know, a company that is a U.S. company that's offering software products to Chinese users, right? And so in this, in this scenario, the, the U.S. company, you know, doesn't have a Chinese subsidiary. It's just, you know, the Chinese user just, you know, downloads software uh, from the U.S. company's website. And then in that process is sharing personal information with the U.S. company. Um, because the U.S. company is processing personal information of individuals located in China for the purposes of offering products and services in China, then the U.S. company would be subject to PIPL, right? And so as it relates to the processing of that personal information, you have to comply with the requirements. So you have to provide adequate notice. You have to obtain the consent. You have to comply with cross-border transfer requirements. You have to have a local representative. All these things all of a sudden get triggered as soon as you're processing that activity, the information of Chinese individuals. Again, the high priority areas are 
if you transfer that information to third parties or you engage in cross-border data transfer of that data. And then uh, on the, in the, the yellow box, what we have is, okay, these are what you're, this is the data that you're actually, this is how you're actually using the data, right? And so if you're using the data for marketing or your, your sort of product improvement or AI training, um, you're sort of using it for product websites on social media, you have to make sure you provide the adequate notice to data subjects, which under PIPL is going to be more comprehensive. And then uh, you have to ensure that you have a legal basis for that processing. So, you know, if you don't have a direct contract with the user, then you need to get their consent, right? So those are the, those are the, those are sort of the case studies. Um, hopefully, you know, I know I went through them pretty quickly, but hopefully as you have time to go through them, uh, that will help you sort of apply the principles and the requirements of the PIPL to like a specific company's data processing activities. Um, so for now, I'll, I'll pass the, the presentation out to my colleague, Todd, uh, who will go into more detail on the cross-border data transfer requirements. And then we'll have at the end, after Todd present, presents, a Q&A session, and we can ask about either my presentation or his presentation. Thank you, David. Um, let me try to do the um, screen share for my portion of the presentation. Hopefully, um, I could do it. The, um, yep. Um, so basically, um, uh, thanks, David, for your comprehensive introduction. I think um, you've covered a lot of grounds, and uh, uh, my presentation at the top of the slide, um, you know, a few slides are probably a little bit um, overlapping uh, with David, so I'll go very quickly uh, and then dive into the issue of cross-border uh, data transfer. I think that, that you, what, what you see here is a sort of a, a, a um, a map uh, that indicates that it sometimes is important to remember that uh, the uh, data privacy and data security regime in China is not just the personal information protection law or, or what we call PIPL, but also the cybersecurity law as a general framework, um, you know, and also data security law, which encompasses not just personal data, but also other type of data, especially uh, what we call "quote unquote" important data that that you know potentially may have like national security implications or um, you know huge um, significant um, you know public um, interest um, um, issues um, and and all of these three major laws they sort of have certain overlap but they um, also have um, different focuses or you know. Um, it, um, Areas that that others uh, other regulations are not, and the basically I think the important um, um, uh, three key things to remember for cross border uh, transfer of data in China is that the uh, let me think um, in the interest of time we'll probably just um, you know go through oh, this one yeah so. Um, a set of regulations and uh, you know national standards, um, in addition to these uh, you know ma three major laws, uh, have also been published. There are laws that define uh, what uh, uh, what are called um, critical information infrastructure operator or CIIO, um, you know, and also who uh, would qualify as processing important data and also you know personal information exceeding certain volume threshold. Uh, 
you know, uh, these are the legal standards that then set the, um, you know, standards for who might need to go through what we call a mandatory security assessment process that's <clears throat> uh, led by the CAC or Cyber um, Space Administration of China. So, and then for those, um, you know, uh, companies that qualify for CAC-led security assessment, that's a uh, one of the most important pathway for lawfully transferring data outside of China. Uh, there are also a separate set of regulations that focus on, um, you know, and, uh, companies who are not subject to the government-led security assessment process, uh, but are allowed to choose, um, you know, the following two um, other pathways for purpose of data transfer. One is to sign what we call a standard contract clause or, or data transfer agreement with the overseas data recipients. Um, and that standard contract clause um, has, um, as many of you uh, probably know, have been um, issued already by the Chinese regulator uh, as a template quite recently. And uh, you know, if you don't go with that route, then the third pathway is to try to obtain a certification from a you know qualified uh, institution, which are non-government, uh, but some you know they're, they're they're basically certified or qualified by the by uh, by the CAC uh, as um, professional institutions that could uh, conduct these kind of certifications. So, in a quick summary, it literal literally there are, there are three pathways for uh, different types of companies to try to transfer. Uh, their data lawfully outside of China. Number one is the government-led security assessment if you meet certain requirements. And if you don't meet those requirements, then you either go with um, signing a standard contract clause or you get a certification from the from the regulator. So we'll we'll then go into a bit more detail in terms of who would qualify for um, which uh, pathways and how that works. Um, and, and before we you go into that, I think uh, we we uh, lay out some uh, sort of key legal concepts. Uh, so there's this distinction under the PIPL uh, uh, between pers general personal information and sensitive personal information. I laid out the sort of the definitions here. I won't go into too much details. The general personal information is pretty broad, basically any kind of uh, information or data in any form that could help identify a person and, and cannot be anonymized. Uh, and then sensitive personal information are some of those, uh, in the, you know, uh, personal information that uh, uh, could, if handled improperly, leaked or illegally used, may cause death, you know, uh, serious harm to the dignity of the natural person, or you know, um, uh, property damages, uh, etc. So th there are some inexhaustive examples like information on bio personal biometric data, um, you know, characteristics, religious beliefs, uh, bank accounts, you know, health information, etc., and also personal information about minors. So basically, you know. Uh, these two different types of uh, 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 personal information, they subject to, I mean, at, at least the sensitive personal information are subject to separate consent from data subjects uh, in terms of data processing and cross-border transfer. Uh, and also they're subject to some, some heightened uh, protection. Um, and CIL is another uh, important uh, legal concept that you know has bearings um, in terms of whether you would uh, be required to go through a government-led security assessment. That's a relatively complex uh, legal concept. It's vaguely defined. 
the government laid out some of the uh, you know examples of industry sectors that tend to be related to um, CIL. But in a nutshell, uh, the general process is that if you are deemed as a critical information infrastructure operator in China, most likely you're in the banking industry, transportation industry, water conservatory industry, telecom industry, et cetera. And the government will knock on your door and give you a certificate and say, hey, you know, you're a CIO. And the essential, you know, feature of being a CIO is that all of the data that you collect has to be stored locally in China. You cannot transfer those data outside of China without the government-led security assessment process. So that's a pretty onerous um, requirement. Most of the uh, you know, commercial, you know, companies are probably, you know, not uh, under that category. And important data is another um, sort of a key legal definition. Again, vaguely defined under the Chinese law, it's based on sort of the nature of the data, uh, whether, you know, if improperly handled, it could endanger national security, uh, the uh, economic security and social stability, public health and safety, et cetera, uh, in China. Um, but, you know, they've, uh, despite the big, uh, you know, definition, they've empowered regional and specific industry sectors to formulate more specific catalogs and uh, more, you know, refined definitions. For example, in the automotive industry, they have uh, a set of more detailed guidelines as to what kind of data might be qualified as important data in that particular industry. And there is also the, you know, healthcare industry, life science industry, um, big, big health data, for example. Uh, there's a set of uh, subset of um, you know uh, industry specific definitions, and the key takeaway for why the quote unquote important data is important is that to the extent that your company, despite the fact that you're not a CIIO but you handle uh, important data, then you would have to treat those important data um, you know very carefully and, and, and sensitively. Number one, you need to obtain you know sort of a, you know a, a government approval or what we call the first pathway, the um, security, uh, government-led security assessment before you're allowed to transfer those in, uh, important data outside of China. And, uh, you know, there's there's some, you know, draft uh, regulations that lay out some of the examples uh, of what might be considered as important data. They help, they're helpful, but on the other hand, they're also confusing, unfortunately. Um, some of the, you know, ca uh, ca categories are pretty broad and could be, you know, um, uh, uh, why there, there's a there's a very you know uh, a high degree of discretion from the government uh, perspective how they may interpret it. Uh, therefore, it's important uh, for uh, you know uh, you know uh, multinational companies to consult uh, with uh, experienced counsel on a case by case basis whether certain data would be considered potentially as, as important data. So, without further ado. Then I'll go to the next, um, you know, um, segment, which is to specifically talk about uh, the government-led security assessment pathway. Um, you know, this uh, there is a specific, um, you know, regulation that was issued by the CAC uh, back in July 2022. It's called the Measures for Security Assessment of Cross-Border Data Transfer, um, and uh, you know, it, there's there's a grace period of. Um, six months uh, after the um, the measures became officially effective in September uh, last year, uh, but you know uh, obviously it's uh, the time has come. And, uh, there are many uh, companies, as we understand, have um, started to make the filings uh, to to the CIC uh, local counterparts 
for that process. And just to just to you know at a high level, who might be required to go through that uh, government-led security assessment process? It's like I, like I mentioned earlier. First, it's the CIO. If the government give you a certificate and tell you that you are a CIO, the critical information infrastructure operator, then you know, because of your special identity, you have to, you have to, you know, all the data, regardless of, you know, how, how many, all, all has to be approved before it goes out uh, the door um, out of China. Uh, the second type of special identity is that you are a big sort of large volume data handler. Well, the current threshold is you handle personal information of more than 1 million individual users. So that's, a, you know, for some industries, that's a pretty high uh, threshold. But for others like e-commerce, for example, uh, or retail, you could relatively easily hit that uh, you know, threshold. Um, so apart from sort of the special identity type of uh, threshold, then uh, the, the next category would be like, depending on the sensitivity and scale or volume of the data to be transferred abroad. Um, number one is that if, if, if the data that you process involve important data, then, uh, you know, you know, separate from the other general data that you handle, um, the, the, the important data portion has to go through the government security assessment before you are allowed to do the transfer. Um, and, you know, the next is, is about volume. The volume is a bit tricky because it depends on whether it's general information, general personal information, or sensitive, um, you know, personal information. Um, if it is general personal information, then we're talking about the threshold of ten. Uh, I'm sorry, hundred thousand um, individual data subjects. And if it is sensitive personal information we mentioned earlier, then it's uh, the threshold lowers down to ten thousand. And there's a time frame limit also to that uh, to that threshold. Essentially, at any point of time when you're assessing whether you're required to go to the government for security assessment of cross-border data transfer, you look back to January 1st of the previous year. And you know, during this time frame, whether you've hit um, the volume threshold of cross-border data transfer. And there's a lot of nuance in terms of you know, how you make that calculation and at what point in time you're required to start um, assessing them and going back to the last year, uh, January last year, right? So it, it's a bit tricky because if you if you are assessing um, as of now, like you know today is May 10th, right? If you look back to January last year, then you're talking about like you know close to you know one and a half year. But if you are you know you making that decision at the end of this year, then you know look back to January 1st, then it's almost you know certainly about two years. So. Um, and that certainly uh, will have an impact also as to whether you uh, have hit that that data as well, because the time frame with the with the length um, expanded time frame, then the the volume of, of of data personal information that you handle could increase. Right. So again, uh, these are the the statutory threshold for you to make a decision whether you qualify to go through the CAC led um, uh, you know security assessment process. Um, and then here's a sort of, a, at a, again, at a very high level, uh, generally how the process works. Um, you know, although we're talking about specifically government uh, security assessment, but you need to do actually two other, you know, previous steps before you, you're allowed to get to that. First is you have to go through a security self-assessment for the cross-border transfer uh, and then generate a self-assessment report. 
And that self-assessment self report, we'll talk about it um, in a minute. It's basically an internal document uh, you know, demonstrating to the regulators that you're not blindly just trying to do the data transfer. You have thought through whatever, what are the potential, you know, data security risks uh, and compliance gaps that you have, and then, you know, what measures uh, you'll be taking to mitigate those risks uh, or, you know, remediate those uh, compliance gaps. So that's one document that you have to prepare. The, the second is that you still have to do uh, to enter into a cross-border data transfer agreement with the overseas data recipients. And that you know, cross-border data transfer agreement will have to set forth the major rights and obligations between your China um, entity as sort of the, the, the data exporter, if you will, and the overseas data recipients. And that requirement applies even when the overseas data recipients um, are just your you know, overseas headquarters, for example, or an affiliate uh, in Europe. So you have to basically do these two steps before you prepare and submit your application to the government security assessment uh, process. Um, and you know, I'll, I won't go into a lot of details in terms of uh, uh, the, um, the the first step, the self-assessment. But basically, you know, the the current regulation, um, you know, set out some basic uh, guidelines in terms of what you need to consider, what 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 that. Uh, self-assessment report need to uh, address in terms of the scope and purpose and the manner of the data transfer, analysis of the legality, uh, legitimacy and reasonableness and necessity of, of that process, and then, you know, overseas data recipients commitment to, and to you know, take on the responsibilities and obligations, risks, um, adequate, uh, you know, uh, contracts in place, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's a whole bunch of, uh, um, you know, points that you have to cover in that self-assessment, um, you know, um, report. And then the data transfer agreement, again, there's a lot of mandatory requirement, what, what you know, contents, what provisions has to be in there in order to meet the requirements uh, of, of, of uh, the regulatory um, authorities in terms of, you know, um, a, uh, explaining, you know, again, uh, the purpose, the matter, the scope of the cross-border data transfer, uh, data process, you know, the, the use and matter of the data processing by the overseas data recipients, where that data will be uh, stored, how for how long, outside of the country, you know, what security measures will be taken, uh, remedial measures uh, for violations, emergency response mechanism, et cetera. So it has, all has to be in there. Um, and then, Last point, you have to prepare and submit uh, all the relevant documents for the government security assessment. There's a whole package, a whole dossier of you know, application documents involved, including the agreement, the cross-border data transfer agreement, the self-assessment report, some basic information about the China-based data handler, and other supporting documents uh, you know, you know, required by the CAC. The, that process um, is heavily focused on assessing the risk that the cross-border data transfer activities may pose to national security, public interest, and legitimate rights, and the interests of individuals and organizations. Um, it's important to note that uh, you know, this whole process of government security assessment is pretty cumbersome and pretty intrusive. So to the extent possible, a lot of our clients are saying, you know, we'll, you know, uh, we'll try our best to you know, justify or to avoid being uh, caught by this requirement. In other words, uh, if we can, 
will argue, will try to argue that we're not required to go through this process, but instead to, you know, to maybe go through some less um, onerous uh, process. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more later in terms of the current, um, you know, uh, enforcement trend and current practice and uh, what, what some, of, some, some other companies are, um, uh, have been doing uh, when they are caught by this requirement to go through the governance and security of the um, um, So the next um, is uh, what we'll get to the, the, the second pathway, which is called standard contract clause, uh, which is, you know, we're basically um, the Chinese version of standard contract clause. Um, if you are familiar with the GDPR concept, but it's, you know, it's largely the same concept, but slightly different in the sense that uh, under the EU GDPR, you know, you probably know there are four different board versions of it, depending on you know, whether you are a data controller, data processor, et cetera, et cetera. But in China, there's only just one, you know, template that is recently issued by the Chinese government. Um, you know, and it's just focusing on two, two, two different roles. The domestic, uh, you know, data transfer raw or exporter, and then the overseas data recipient. And this, um, you know, what we call standard contract. You know, uh, there, there are actually two two documents related to that. One is the regulation itself called standard contract clause measures, and the second attached to that is the template document itself. Um, this uh, document um, will become effective starting June uh, 2023. So in less than a month, um, the template is um, going to be effective. But again, you know, there's a six, another six month of grace period for companies to go in, uh, to get into compliance. Essentially, you know, um, who qualifies to go through that? You know, very obviously, if you don't qualify for government-led security assessment, then you qualify for uh, this pathway. So you're essentially, you're not CIO, you don't, um, you, um, you're not handling personal information exceeding 1 million individuals. You don't have an aggregated transfer of personal information exceeding, you know, the threshold that we talked about, be it the general personal information of 10,000, um, you know, um, 100,000 or um, sensitive personal information of 10,000. Um, and then uh, uh, similar to what we have mentioned before, um, not just the standard contract clause itself, uh, you would still have to conduct a personal, uh, a separate personal information protection impact assessment, uh, and prepare that impact assessment report along with the standard contract clause. And both documents are required to be filed uh, with the local regulator within ten working days after the standard contract is signed. Um, and then the third pathway, just very quickly, the certification passage. It has, uh, there's, um, so far, there's only one agency that has been uh, designated. It's called China Cybersecurity Review Technology and Certification Center um, as sort of the cert first certification agency under the PIPL. Uh, they're already starting to accept certification applications. Uh, once you get certified, it's valid for three years. It could be renewed um, if relevant requirements are satisfied. And basically there are a whole bunch of, uh, you know, criteria. Um, you know, whether you uh, meet those requirements um, in, in, for a certification process. You have to sign, again, legally binding and enforceable data transfer agreements. You have to designate a person in charge of the data protection and then establish a uh, personal information protection you know, uh, function or department. 
You have to have you know policies and procedures in place. You have to conduct impact assessment. Um, and this is this. Um, I think that the the benefit of this certification process is that um, you know once you get certified, then you don't have to. You, you can within the valid you know certification period, then you could just do go on with the cross border data transfer. Um, you know, exercise as a routine. Uh, you don't have to get, you know, any further, uh, you know, approvals or, um, you know, filings, et cetera. And sometimes you may ask, why do companies choose uh, certification over the standard uh, contract, uh, you know, clause uh, pathway, which sounds much less intrusive? Uh, there's a number of reasons. One of the key ones is that oftentimes the standard contract clause uh, pathway would require um, a lot of disclosures uh, from the overseas data recipient side in terms of, uh, you know, and also, um, you know, uh, agreement, uh, commitment from, from, from their side. And sometimes you won't always get cooperation uh, from overseas data recipients. Uh, therefore, uh, sometimes uh, if you go with the certification process, even though it's a, it's a bit more intrusive than the standard contract clause, but certainly less less intrusive than the government-led security assessment process. Uh, and in the meantime, there's some flexibility in terms of, hey, um, if we can't get cooperation from overseas data recipients in signing the standard templates, then, you know, but we have other security, you know, mechanism in place to ensure that the data is still protected, then we could still get certified. Um, so um, lastly, um, before we get to Q&A, I think some of the key takeaways, um, given the time constraint, we may not be able to get into um, details, but basically we're seeing many of our uh, you know, clients doing a number of things. Number one, they have to conduct a data mapping exercise to truly understand the categories, the locations, the volumes and the natures of the you know, data that they're processing in China, um, so as to determine uh, the specific applicable uh, pathways that they fall under, right? So that data mapping exercise is very important because oftentimes, as you know, one function may know that they they collect you know this much data for this purpose, but the other functions are not notified and they don't know. So the purpose of the the comprehensive data mapping process is really to help the company be informed about hey, overall as a you know the entire China region or a specific China legal sub subsidiary. Uh, what, how much data, what kind of data are we collecting and processing? How much are being transferred outside of China? Are there important data involved? Are there sensitive personal information involved? Do we trigger, do we, you know, will we trigger the government security assessment or, or will we uh, just be okay with uh, signing a template, uh, you know, standard contract clause? Um, and then, you know, separate from that data mapping exercise, you determine which pathway you qualify, and then you started to conduct the security self-assessment and then also the uh, personal information protection impact assessment. Um, and then you prepare, you know, uh, data transfer agreement or in the, in the standard contract template um, scenario, the, the SSC, uh, SEC templates. And then you, as an ongoing concern, you also have to constantly review and update your current uh, sort of data related policies both in terms of like internal employee notices, external facing privacy notice and policies uh, to stay you know, in compliance with the requirements of the PIPR. 
Um, it's a, it's sort of a very, very fast track overview. I apologize because of the time constraint, um, but I think we uh, hopefully we still have some time left for the Q and A. Back to you, Pia. Thank you both. Um, for attendees, if you have questions, please type them into the Q&A. Um, I'm going to start off with a question that I have and that I've heard from many other people. So um, for your multinational clients, and this is for both Todd and David, um, can you tell us about what their compliance status is? You know, for example, is everyone pretty much compliant? And if you're not, you're way behind. Uh, are companies struggling to catch up? Um, and are there certain gaps or challenges that you've seen consistently from your clients? Um, David, you want to go ahead or you want me um, either way? I, I think maybe maybe I'll go first. Um, so basically, we're seeing from a from a you know PIPL you know compliance perspective, we're indeed seeing um, most of the you know multinational corporations that we work with at least that they are very conscious of the requirement of like obtaining the consent giving adequate notices to data subjects about their rights and, and etc having like an updated privacy policy etc um so you know if you if some of the attendees here are not even doing that then you are falling behind but in terms of like cross-border data transfer uh, whether they should go ahead and do government-led security assessment or whether they should comply with the standard contract clause uh, or certification pathway. This is something that I think a lot of companies are still kind of, you know, trying to, you know, put their hands around it because the the, the new requirements are pretty new. And quite honestly, uh, the CAC and its local counterparts, they are basically swamped with applications. They probably went a little over aggressive in terms of trying to cover you know, a broader base of, uh, you know, uh, companies um, under their, uh, you know, pretty low thresholds, but they have underestimated the number of, um, you know, applications that they could receive for the cybersecurity, uh, the government that security assessment process. And we're seeing a huge backlog in terms of, um, you know, their ability to review and clear those applications. So far in Shanghai, the latest data suggests that the only two companies, two applications have been cleared you know, a long, long list, hundreds of the applications are still in queue, and it's estimated to be taking, you know, months, if not, you know, uh, one or two years to get them all cleared. Uh, we're hearing some, sometimes the CSC officials are kind of signaling to the applicants, hey, you barely passed the threshold. Why don't you hold off? You know, we're already swamped. We don't have enough staff to review your things. Uh, but again, it doesn't mean that uh, you should just feel, you know, um, comfortable not doing anything at this stage, at least, you know, do a data mapping uh, to understand which category do you fall under. And, uh, you know, hopefully you fall under the standard contract clause, um, you know, pathway, which is a lot easier, but then you still have to analyze the template because that template is pretty comprehensive. Uh, the law says that you cannot make any changes to the template, but you're allowed to add additional supplemental provisions without conflicting with the main template, right? And then there's the impact assessment. There's you know sort of the self-assessment report that you have to comply with. Uh, there, 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 there's essentially you know a lot of key decisions have to be made. Uh, you know when, when you're going through sort of the compliance exercise, and obviously you know the lawyers uh, and consultants are helpful in that process. Hopefully, uh, and we have we have done uh, we have helped many clients uh, so far. Uh, both in terms of directly going through the security assessment process 
and also starting to you know um, deal with the standard contract class uh, pathways as well. Yeah, Todd, I, my my experience I think is similar. I think um, awareness is high, but I think compliance is generally low. Um, you know, as, as it relates to this, the cross border uh, aspects, I think as you said, there's been uh, a lot of attention. Uh, there's a lot of backlog. Um, but I think it also varies by industry. I think, you know, larger companies that process a large amount of personal information are probably a little bit ahead of the game. Um, but there are other companies that, you know, don't, aren't consumer facing, um, but are, you know, processing, you know, human resources data, um, and, and aren't as data focused that are sort of catching up. But I think awareness is definitely high. Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, a, a significant amount of effort, I think, on a lot of uh, U.S. companies to, you know, get their uh, organizations in check and, and set up um, and to start to take uh, the steps that they need to bring into compliance. I think the advice we always tell companies is that you need to show steps, uh, steps towards compliance, even if you're not fully compliant. Um, it's always helpful to show that you're taking a serious effort to comply with the requirements. I agree with you, David, and I think that uh, a lot of a lot of our clients are certainly just um, already started that process of discussion with us. Uh, and and what's the, the, you know I couldn't emphasize uh, more enough uh, in terms of like the importance of conducting this data mapping exercise internally because you won't know what risks uh, there are unless you have you know taken a serious look at it comprehensively. Right? So this this data mapping exercise is really you know the 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 way. We deal with it is, you know, there's going to be a very comprehensive like data mapping questionnaire sent to the company's in-house counsel or, you know, privacy officer. And then he's going to lead the entire process of, you know, organizing like 10 or 20 even different functions and departments, asking each of them to fill out those forms. And then we'll have like, you know, a conference call or, or, or you know, all hands meeting to kind of go through, you know, questions. Uh, gaps in terms of the response that we've received, or even we start with like a general introduction meeting, telling them how to read these questionnaires, how to respond to those questions, what certain questions actually means. And then once you get to a full complete map, and then you, you, you then know, you know, where are the, you know, which pathway do you belong to, and then what actions that you need to take, right? And then also the other issue that many of our clients are seeing is the current enforcement trend, right? David, earlier you mentioned about the penalties of non-compliance. That's literally just uh, in terms of the, the, the sort of the statutory provision under the PIPL in terms of penalties. But we're also seeing, as you probably have seen if you're uh, paying attention, Chinese government has recently taken a series of enforcement actions against foreign consulting firms and due diligence firms, right? There is the Mintz Group, which is a US-based uh, uh, due diligence firm with operations in Beijing. Uh, their office was raided, six local employees were arrested because they were involved in you know, conducting due diligence uh, on behalf of foreign clients and potentially even some sensitive NGOs uh, on the supply chain due diligence relating to the Xinjiang forced labor issue, right? And, and, and then Bing and Bing and the company, you know, again, they were raided. Uh, no one was arrested, but, you know, documents and computers were seized and, you know, their local employees were questioned. There is also, you know, Cooper Vision, Cooper Vision the other local consulting firm, who specializes in like expert network type of consulting, 
uh, they were also under uh, current, uh, you know, national uh, state secrecy and you know, sort of anti or counter espionage investigations. They were arrests were made because they, you know, helped foreign clients to conduct, uh, you know, due diligence and research projects by granting access to certain sensitive, uh, you know, experts um, in China. So uh, this, it's important to realize that data is becoming. Uh, data and data security is becoming a serious compliance issue uh, on top of minds of many general councils, uh, especially U.S.-based general councils, because it's not just the PIPL. It's the fact that Chinese government is waking up to the fact that uh, there are, in their view, you know, foreign adversaries are, you know, kind of spying on China, trying to get sensitive data outside of China. So they're looking at uh, many things, uh, both in terms of compliance with the data security law and PIPL in general, but um, potential espionage activities, consulting services, and especially due diligence activities in the context of M&A transactions and other research projects, both conducted directly by foreign parties, but also involving uh, local vendors. So compliance risks are running very, very high these days in connection with data security in China. Hopefully that's the key takeaway that you'll remember, if nothing else. For today. And that's a great key takeaway to, to leave us with. We're at our time. Um, David Chen from Ropes and Gray, Todd Liao from Morgan and Lewis, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Um, if you are attending, um, get in touch with these fine lawyers if you need their services, and uh, we will send out the slides after this presentation. Thank you. Great. Thank you all. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Pia. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure.